And welcome to another episode of Cursed Objects, a podcast about big ideas, cultural history, and the sort of tap that you find at a car boot sale. Uh, as usual, um, I am Dan Hancocks, journalist, author, um, and as of the last 18 months, podcaster. And I'm joined by my co-host. Hi, Dr. Cashty, historian and person. <laughs> I don't have anything else to add. <laughs> I'm keeping coy. So um, if you haven't listened before, every week we take it in turns to bring in uh, a cursed object, as the title suggests, and then discuss sort of some of what it, what it tells us about the world around us and how the material history of living, you know, of things um, kind of explains, explains everything from sort of sociology to, uh, you know, the slightly cheaper side of pop culture um, and this week the Cursed Objects team are split across Europe. I'm here in downtown Barcelona unusually with our second ever special guest who I'm delighted could join us today, uh, writer, podcaster, uh, Frasier substacker and direct inspiration <laughs> for Cursed Objects in the sense that I pestered him with numerous questions when we were starting out uh, about how to do this. Uh, it's Hugh Lemmy who's one half of the Bad Gaze podcast uh, welcome, Hugh. Hello, thank you for having me. No worries at all. Um, so, yeah, Hugh and I are sitting here in his lovely study in Barcelona, and Kasha is down the line in London. Um, just want to tell you at the very top of the show that um, Hugh and his co-host, Ben, have a superb uh, book of their podcast coming out in May, um, on May the 31st to be precise, which is called with its full title and I've got a proof copy in front of me bad gaze a homosexual history uh and that is your perfect alternative route into pride month which begins the following day I believe on June the 1st um what a coincidence <laughs> you, you, you used to work in publishing marketing and I always almost suspect that there's uh, there's something some of that intelligence has been brought forward into his own uh, illustrious publishing career which also includes two excellent novellas and will hopefully, I think, soon feature a third. Three novellas? Three novellas. Are you implying one of them isn't excellent, though? <laughs> Two excellent novellas and one terrible novella. <laughs> one like, mediocre yeah. one. I'm sorry I forgot about the third one. Um, but yes, do check out um, Chubbs and Red Tory uh, and the third one, whose name I've forgotten. Unknown Language. That's it, Unknown Language, which was out just last year and I haven't read yet, as reflected in my terrible introduction. <laughs> but yeah, we're delighted to have research, you. Do your research, Dan. Do your research. Yeah, great start. <laughs> in insulting the guest. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Hugh, could you, could you tell us about what cursed object you brought in for us today? Yeah, um, I brought in today what's called, I think the official name is the Pink Jack, which is a pink Union Jack, as it sounds. Uh, and it's all pink, but in different shades to obviously 
mm-hmm. show the different parts of the Union Jack, which is obviously the British flag. Yeah, yeah. Does this fly from any particular... I mean, I've not seen it raised aloft over Buckingham Palace or any other sort of key offices of state. No, but it's sort of, it does appear quite a lot in sort of pride marches and oh. various other political events that we can marches we can talk to, and quite often in, in gay bars and places like that. Really? So yeah. you would actually see it sort of wandering around Soho, hypothetically, theoretically at least? Yeah, theoretically, yeah, or in, in yeah, in various places in the UK, yeah. And do you know, have you any idea, like, how long has, the, has this been around, this idea of uh, queering the Union Jack? Um, I think 2005 was when it was invented. I think it was sort of premiered like the first time it was sort of like released mm-hmm. was i think for euro pride in 2006 euro pride is like a oh every year there's like a gay pride or lgbtq pride march yeah but um there's in like every city every major city i guess in europe but they also have this big one called euro pride which is like the, the sort of very big like party one okay uh, and that, that that travels around like various con- countries and cities like uh, yeah, like here in barcelona it comes quite a lot it's a very gay city so it's a touring sort of yeah it's like Euro- a bit like eurovision or something <laughs> right but for, for pride Dif- different host nation gets it yeah time. yeah and it tends to be um i'd say on on the sort of party end of pride rather than the protest end of pride right i mean and so to come back to this to the uh pink jack i mean is that that's not a party symbol is it that carries a lot of political uh weight I suppose, the, the determination to sort of bring these two ideas together. But... Yeah, I think that's what's quite interesting about it is because because uh, in one way, when you see it, it, it's very, it feels almost apolitical. It's like mm-hmm. the way it's used and or thought about, like it's, it's very conscious, like, self, like self-consciously, like people who use it mm. think it's just a sort of way to express the fact that you're British and mm. gay or British and queer. Mm-hmm. But obviously, like it's also super loaded yeah with you know like and and so quite often like when you also see it like for me it's like a, it feels what it symbolizes and is the depoliticization of a lot of like right. aspects of like queerness and it's quite interesting as well because it was specifically invented and designed because um as a act of i guess patriotism mm. because the the inventor who's um david gwinnett gwinnett mm. who's um who's actually a very interesting photographer he sort of photographed a sort of soho scene and you know Going go back to sort of seventies and eighties, people like Quentin Crisp and all these are interesting figures, but he he designed it I think specifically because he felt that the the rainbow flag was too American. He saw that as sort of form, oh, right. form of like almost cultural imperialism from American queers. Wow. So yeah, uh, so there's like there is a lot of politics. I mean, I've always been interested in vex vexillology. Is that the study of flags? Vexicology. Vexicology makes it sounds medical, so I think vexillology is the city of flags. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're in the right city for it. So I was walking around Barcelona this morning and never fails to impress me just how many balconies of... So, like, in the neighbourhood near where, where Hugh lives, there's a neighbourhood called Barceloneta that, that has its own flag for a, quite, it's quite a small um, historic fishing village. But you'll see those mingled with... I saw Ukrainian flags today. I saw the Spanish flag, but also the... Spanish flag of the Second Republic flying. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot. I mean, do you, you presumably get the rainbow flag is sort you, of in Barcelona quite a lot too. Yeah, yeah. And there's the, there's like a gay district in the Champlain, which is called mm. Gay Champlain now. Gay Champlain. This right, area. Yeah. And that, that you see the rainbow flag a lot. Can I just say, what I really love about this object and what I think it really speaks to is something that we do quite a lot here on Cursed Objects is the kind of marrying of 
big P politics and small P politics. And it's doing that so visibly because it's, you know, a flag traditionally represents like a nation. So it's like that grand level, like the grand level narratives that tie together a nation. But this really specifically is tying together very individual personal politics within those grander narratives Mm -hmm. of nationhood, which I think is incredibly neat and really good as a cursed object. I just wanted to say, (laughs) very excited by that idea. Yeah. I think I think you, you have to look in a number of ways, one of which is its relationship towards the Union Jack and one of it is its relationship towards the rainbow flag, which is obviously the, the rainbow flag was invented in the, the late 70s by a guy called Gilbert Baker, who I think died mm-hmm. last year, maybe or the year before. And it's like very specifically in its in, it's very utopian. Obviously, it's a rainbow. Yeah. Uh, and it, um, originally, each color represented things, you know, like spirit and sex and mind and things. Wow. Um, and and there's there's is that that the rainbow flag in itself is like a fascinating thing because it symbolizes both like an act of like I guess pride like in mm. the same in the same way that someone who's a nationalist might carry their national flag with pride mm. it's like saying I'm here this is this is who I belong to but it also ties in with this idea that emerged in America in the sort of 1950s about creating the idea of the homosexual or the, the gay person. Mm-hmm which was really influenced, it actually was really influenced by a lot of like Marxist sort of even Stalinist ideas um, of around, wow. around national minorities. Uh, and the idea was basically uh, these sort of communist gay people in the 19, early 1950s um, who were part of like a, a sort of wider basic nascent gay rights movement. Mm. They were sort of saying, well, um, if we want to be recognised and win our rights within, a, within this nation, the US, um, we have to constitute ourselves as a people. So, what do, do what does the people have? Like they have mm. shared reckon, like shared recognition, shared mm. culture, mm. Um, and a and a shared identity that they can point to, which was like the creation of the idea of like, okay, I'm gay, and then I'm going to come out of the closet. You know, so mm. it's tied into those ideas really, really early. Um, and there's there's a whole history there to do with like the, how the gay rights movement emerged. Because it's emerging in the 1950s, exactly when um, in America, as part of the Red Scare, or even preceding the Red Scare, there's this thing called the Lavender Scare, mm. which is an attempt to purge the State Department specifically and the US federal government in general of homosexuals because there was this idea that homosexuality was implicitly seditious. Yeah, an enemy within, essentially. Yeah, exactly, an enemy an enemy within. And, and as part of, the, of the, pur- uh, the Lavender Scare, they purged the government of about 5,000 uh, gay, gay and lesbian people. Um, uh, which which has this um, unintended consequence that maybe if you're trying to suppress like a a, a nascent political identity like a homosexual, don't sack five thousand people, make them <laughs> make them like basically unemployable, yeah. all of whom are very well qualified and understand how the state works, because <laughs> you suddenly have all these people who like have previously been running departments within the state department mm. and then now have to get a job as a, a barman they all go to like san francisco basically or new york mm. they have to get a job as a barman because non employment because their names they've been you know publicly shamed yeah yeah um so so they start to like organize these people like who right like, like people like frank kameny for example who was a he was a as, astronomer yeah, in the <laughs> in the in the US Army Map we, Service, we do like astrology, but yeah, yeah. let's give him the credit. But he so so he was sacked, and he would just basically refused to go back into, into the closet, and he became like one that like fought a, a lot of uh, legal campaigns within to get sort of recognition for gay people and, and anti discrimination campaigns. So you have this emerging, but then at the same time, because there's like a uh, a red scare happening, these mm. gay rights organisations, many of which were started by people with experience 
uh, from Trotskyist left, mm-hmm. um, then um, get purged themselves. Of uh, so they become quite conservative throughout the early nineteen sixties, and then and then then that sort of uh, precipitates uh, Stonewall and the Gay Liberation mm-hmm. Movement, which is again this big shift, and it's it's out of the Gay Liberation Movement, which is, starts in sort of sixty nine. Yeah, seventy. Uh, that um, this idea of gay pride specifically, and the and then the later the pride flag emerges. Um, but yeah, so the, the, it's implicitly tied. Like the idea of homosexuality, we talk mm-hmm. about this actually in the book, is really the creation of the homosexual subjects and the gay subject is really implicitly tied with the creation of nationhoods and the idea of the nation and wow. the minority within the nation. Because that, I mean, yeah, it, it's quite a journey, though, isn't it? When in, <laughs> quite an extraordinary journey from that sort of complete marginalization and the you know the purge of the that followed the lavender scare at a point when you know long before decriminalization in in the u.s i'm assuming uh, yeah that's the 50s i mean full decriminalization of the u.s wasn't achieved until the mid-2000s yeah you told me this before and it blew my mind on that occasion as well i'm really interested in this idea of uh like gay identities and connecting with the idea of nationhood. And I was wondering whether there was a way of connecting that um, a little or thinking about how that connects with place a little bit more. So I like lived in Brighton for like five years and I think it's really striking that their pride, their annual pride celebration, I think I'm right in saying took over from, there was a festival of Brighton kind of, I'm, I'm not sure exactly of time periods, but it was called the festival of Brighton. And then that then became uh, the pride festival. So it started off as like a kind of regional local festival that then went on to become a pride festival. And I wondered whether you had any thoughts on how like the development of the subjective gay self and also the idea of nationhood ties in maybe more specifically to place I don't know if that's a too diffuse a question yeah yeah it's a super interesting question I mean part of that really I think is related to the idea of like a gay village right and uh, uh or some people call it like a gay ghetto I guess mm-hmm. which is the emergence like around these uh, like in inner cities as the gay liberation movement starts ha- happening of like neighborhoods which are marginally safer for LGBTQ people yeah. um so, so for example, like the village, uh, Greenwich Village in, in New York being one, or De Castro in San Francisco, mm. or um, Old Compton Street in Soho in London, or here, Gay, gay Chamblay, mm. which is you, you start to get like a sort of people coming together a bit more, like there's a recognition that this place, like obviously the Greenwich Village is, the, the places that have always had gay bars quite often, but underground, and as it starts to go overground, they're becomes a sort of commercial infrastructure. Mm. And the, that's what's interesting, I think, about the rainbow flag is it's really tied into a commercial infrastructure. Like it's Because it doesn't just symbolise this idea of perhaps a nascent gay nationhood, mm. which is rife with like really problematic ideas to do with, like obviously to do with race and, and ethnicity and exclusion. Like a, that's the concept of a nation is exclusionary in some way. Mm. Um, but also with commerce, so that the gay pride flag emerges as... A, a sign that this is you know if you're traveling from city to city or you're, you're new in a neighborhood you're like okay this place has a gay pride flag yeah i will find my own type here mm-hmm. which is less necessary i imagine now although still is a function but i still find it kind of frustrating almost which is like if you are traveling in pride month it's the worst month to travel as a as a gay person <laughs> because you can't find the gay bars because all the other bars have got their pride <laughs> flags out that's so interesting <laughs> do you know what i mean just want a yeah. And also yeah, and also the commercialization of it that that like now you know like everyone will have in like a a major city like Barcelona for example or London when it comes to um pride month everyone will put a pride flag in because that's part of like 
you know, their pride celebrations or building commerce, whatever. But it doesn't actually mean the same thing, which is perhaps in the past, if I had a pride flag, you're like, this is probably a safer place. Like the people who work here are probably LGBTQ. Obviously, for lo- that's still exclusionary. Like for loads of people, like especially for like people of color and for trans people, having a rainbow flag does not necessarily symbolize yeah. a safe place to go. But there is a general sort of meaning for that. Whereas now, it's like you, there'll be a, I don't know, like an ASDA or something with a gay pride flag, <laughs> and you're like, well, what's this mean? Like, who here is gay? I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah. In what in what sense is this a sanctuary in which I can know that? Yeah. Is there like is there like a Twitter account that's a little bit like Poppy Watch? You know when there's just like poppies on everything come November. <laughs> there was one for like place unexpected places that you find like pride flags, like in Asda's, like I don't know, someone someone's mum just decided to make like a pride themed pizza or something like that. Oh yeah, pride pizza, delicious pizzas. rainbow pizza. No, I'm not sure. I'm not sure anyone would want to eat that. But yeah, there's an interesting like in Hugh in sort of pointing to that. The fact that like the origins of the pride flag actually do have commercial connotations because you're you know talking about creating a um a subjectivity and and a, and a group group formation requires like you say like rituals and rites and places and symbols and mm-hmm. you know that that's the sort of thing that kind of can bond a group that you know essentially was you know much more diffuse prior to that point in the 1950s and 60s i guess but then is there a contrarian point to be made here about pinkwashing where you sort of say, well, this, but the rainbow flag was always about the commerce to an extent, but it was, but it was in a, you know, oh, very, very yeah. different and less cynical fashion. <laughs> no, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that has always been, has always been, I mean, but then also like the creation, like this is part of it, like the, the, the complications of creating like a gay, like the, the, the ideas of nationhood that are implicit in creating of a, a gay identity are difficult because homosexuality is not a nationality. <laughs> and and the, 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 the big thing, unlike almost all other minorities, um, like queerness, homosexuality, trans people, um, are not the children of, right. or in general, the vast majority sure. of cases are not the children of also of queer people. Yeah. So you don't inherit it in the same way. So the identification of it, a lot of it comes to do with like actual, as you're saying, like places, these gay villages. Mm. And so in the early days, like part of the struggle of the early gay liberation movement was actually in some way liberating like gay bars from mafia control. Like the only people wow. who ran gay bars, because for example, in New York, it was illegal as a gay person to, to buy a drink in a bar. Wow. Like you, like a, a, um, in the 1960s, if you were a barman and you served somebody who you knew to be homosexual a drink, you could be prosecuted. Jesus. So the mafia controlled the bars and the saunas and things like this, and and they did it by paying off obviously the police. Mm. Um, and so Stonewall was um, was a mafia bar, and, and none of these places were particularly well loved because they took advantage of their clients. You know, like yeah. they served watered down drinks at, at bumped up prices. So that was part like um, part of the idea of like winning liberation was actually just about like winning. Um, like pink capitalism or the, mm. the pink pound or the pink dollar has been like really built in from the start because because right. part of like winning liberation was like okay we need our own places run by our own people you yeah know? autonomy essentially within in those yes yeah yeah about. so a lot of the for example in san francisco there, there was like a league of bar owners which was the which was like a gay league of bar, bar owners who who were like quite integral actually in certain aspects of um of the early movement in the 70s um for for example um uh, harvey milk like one of the one of the big wins that harvey milk got 
in when he was a, a city councillor, was organising for the bar owners to join in, the gay bar owners to join in a boycott of Coors Beer, mm-hmm. who were union busting at the time. Right. And in doing so, won the support of the trade union um, that was on strike, I think it was a longshoreman's or something, uh, in order to uh, support... Um, yeah, so he like he made this coalition between the trade unions and the mm. and the gay bars, which was really important in winning, I guess, the respect of the left uh, in, yeah, in, yeah. in the US. But at the same time, there was always a critique at, at that time as well. So, there were, for example, um, there were in in San Francisco in the seventies, uh, as part of the gay liberation movement, there was this urge to like create a separatist um, colony, and it was literally called the Stonewall Colony which was outside of San Francisco in California. And basically they came up with this idea that if they could move uh, like a thousand gay people into this one district, mm. uh, which had a low population, they could win control wow. of the of the politics of it sort of thing. So the idea sort was... gerrymandering yeah, in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just to, to flood this sort of district. And it was... But then the language around that is super complicated because obviously like the language that they used and the... Was is the language of settler colonialism, and they were talking about building a gay nation through the act of settler colonialism in this place, and they saw it as this liberatory thing. But they they adopted because a lot of the um, uh, we did actually an episode on this in bad gays, but they adopted like a there's a, there is a relationship between especially gay men adopting some pretty iffy anthropological positions mm-hmm. upon like the purity of indigenous people as, uh, as people who were uh, outside of the gender system in that way right uh, the western gender system so they, and and of course the land that they were like liberating <laughs> to turn into a gay colony was was colonized from indigenous americans yeah. so yeah yeah you can see the problematic aspects there to sort of take it back to the the flag the today's cursed objects is this an opportune moment to ask you to explain sort of the origins of what is known as homo nationalism what exactly that means and and why it's as far as i understand essentially coined as a pejorative or as a critique rather than as something people are proud of yeah it was it was coined from um by jasbir puar in a book called um a book called terrorist assemblages which is yeah a book about homo nationalism and the relationship between white gay men and the sort of um the 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 changing uses of homosexuality within a national project, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and that book was, I think I've got a copy there actually, 2007. Yeah. That's quite interesting. Cause then that, well, that's like one year after this flag was first. Was sort of yeah. I was, gonna, I was going to say, like, yeah. surely this seems like a 2000s thing. And is part of that about some of the racism that was, you know, infusing the war on terror. Exactly. Yeah. I think, I don't think that was the idea of the guy who designed it. Sure. Like, I, 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 but I think you can still read into the way it's been used since is like being part of this homo nationalist project. Um, so homo nationalism is like a few it's like, operates on a few levels. Uh, one of which is as you're talking about, like this this the use of the homosexual subject and the and the queer community as uh, a lever, like a rhetorical political lever for the othering of uh, particularly Muslims, but also brown people um, mm-hmm. and people from the Middle East as part of this um, sort of Islamophobic, racist the war and terror that emerged in, yeah. after 9 11. So, like culture, cult, the culture war aspects of the war on terror, essentially, and the idea of a, a clash of civilizations. Yeah. I, um, by Bush and Blair and so on. Yeah. But it's also deeper than that. What it also emerges from is this idea that actually homosexual which is entirely ahistorical but is pretty popular which is that 
that the homosexual subject and, and gay rights are in some way the necessary product of the liberal Western project. Okay. Um, and that, that the liberal Western project has been like a sl- the, the slow revealing of, of universal human rights, essentially. A kind of gay end of history. A gay end of history, yeah. That, 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 yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that, Dan. Sorry. <laughs> no, there's, there's a good, uh, it's a good way of describing it. Which is entirely ahistorical because, of course, the creation of the homosexual subject is was something that was created through the colonial project, through the the understanding of like deviant sexual behaviours from mm. from that were sort of observed. You know that that in various countries in the West, like in French, for, in France, for example, sodomy was called doing it colonial style. Wow! So that that there's always that that sodomy was always this like thing that was like part of like the this othering behaviour that was, was like seen in like yeah other other cultures, I guess. And so it was through that project of like trying to understand sodomy and and medicalize it and fit it within like this scientific tax taxonomy mm-hmm. of behavior that created it as a subject and created it as like a as like a medical subject first of all because prior prior to the, like the word homosexual was uh, I think invented invented in the eighteen sixties oh. Be- before that there was was this is a subject of argument but the 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 book is kind of about this but like the before that you had this. Um, understanding more of a series of like discrete sinful or criminal acts that right. sods and that, that sodomy is about failing to re- uh, procreate yeah but the idea of the homosexual as being like a subject like a, a type of person really mm. emerges through that sort of victorian colonial science right um, and of course virtually all of this sort of laws on the books um around the world from these countries that are now within this homonational discourse seen as like backwards you know yeah. or like oh the people of you like the the, the ugandans or the yeah. anti or the the indians etc they're almost all imposed by the british right like right. the british were particularly obsessed with sodomy and uh, in, in colonial subjects yeah. um and loads of the laws were, were just basically transferred straight from the books like the uh, criminal law amendment act in the 1880s which created gross indecency as a crime mm. so before that to be found guilty of sodomy which was a capital offense until the 1860s but to be found guilty of sodomy uh you had to have witnesses and you had to prove that that the penetrative partner ejaculated inside the rectum of the which passive is, partner which is quite a, quite a so a very high bar yeah, yeah like a very high bar whereas whereas um the labouchere amendment which emerged in, in as part of sexual uh, crimes reform uh, which was specifically intended, actually, was based around fears around white slavery, mm-hmm. quote unquote white slavery, which is uh, white women being um, trafficked for sexual offences, and introduced a lot of stuff to do with the raising, raising an age of consent and was about prost- childhood prostitution. It was the Labouchere Amendment of that law which mm-hmm. brought in the crime of gross indecency, which is so so broad it it it, it covered everything, not just sex acts, but also incitement so so chatting a guy up at the toilet at a, a urinal or so just sort of being a bit gay around being someone. a bit gay yeah exactly right. so, so so this creates like the idea that you can prosecute and persecute yeah. the gay subject rather right. than just gay acts yeah wow and, and, which is a quite a that's quite a leap and presumably widens the scope of possibilities for for uh, prosecuting people yeah and also creates the idea of the gay subject yeah that, that this is that, that just right. doing this like showing desire towards a man showing desire yeah, towards yeah. another man um, and it is just ma- ma- male on male that lesbians are not prosecuted and uh, are not um, under this act, but it creates this creates this very idea of like the fact that like 
this guy looking at you in the toilet is in fact creating a like guilty of a criminal offense because of his type you know yeah yeah so that's the thing that's exposed sort of around the world is this is this western uh, eurocentric like gender system which includes persecution of the uh, creation and persecution of the homosexual as a subject and the idea that that subject is you know to a large extent created through like through a judicial kind of frame is extremely, yeah extremely depressing yeah <laughs> not to say that like life is a cakewalk in in any any culture for lgbtq people like is yeah. there, but i'm just saying like the, this rigid creation of that gender system that's then yeah. imposed and the actual laws on the books in places like um, jamaica and uganda and india until yeah. recently were, were written in london yeah, yeah yeah and are part of that state infrastructure which in, in a way sort of pulls us back to this idea of you know the yeah, the, the gay nation or rather the, the flag at the, the very least. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Sorry, can I say, am I right in thinking that the when the Sexual Offences Act came in in 1967, that also, that didn't dismantle this idea of the gay subject because it also penalised certain behaviours and had rules around particular professions and ages, so it kind of brought in the idea that you have to be, like, over 21, so, like, it... it brought into legislation but it also created like vast and wide problems for like how we understand trying to find the right terminology the subjective gay self as it were yeah that's entirely right yeah again like in like in the us like the so-called decriminalization of 67 was actually extremely partial decriminalization um and actually the 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 law was totally equalized in the uk um i think about 2015 when the the prohibition on homosexuals in the merchant navy was introduced was removed um, but yeah, like what's interesting actually about the 67 um, reform, uh, which comes out of the 1957 um, Wolfenden report, um, which were, which which um, advised that that uh, homosexuality should be partially decriminalized um, as something that happens in the private sphere and not really the business of the state. Well, the Wolfenden report also is was uh, um, about homosexuality and prostitution. So you see the same thing again, like this link back towards prostitution. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that the, in the creation of this gay subject, now we understand perhaps um, gay. Now it's soft. We're in the middle of a bit of a change as well. But but until until maybe ten or fifteen years ago, if you ask most people what a, who, who, what a gay man was or a homosexual was, it, you'd get this idea basically of people who are born that way. Mm-hmm. Again, which is part of this like medicalization in, in a certain way. This type type of a subject who are attracted to like maybe masculinity, you know, mm-hmm. in, in some way. Whereas what you have emerging in the Victorian era, which really influences things in the 1950s is this, this idea of the third sex. Mm-hmm. So early sort of discourses on homosexuality are based around this idea of um, inversion. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they, some, they have different words in Germany. They're called earnings. And in, in, in Britain, there's this idea of the Uranian, uh, which is basically a female soul within a male body. Wow. And that helps create actually the gay subject as well. You know, like a lot of the creation of this idea of the gay subject comes through poetry, comes through the poetry of people like um, Alfred Lord Douglas and Oscar Wilde and this like development of this this idea. And the idea of the earning or the third sex is like an invert, it's a sexual invert, it's someone who's set, who's, whose gender is inverted. Mm. Uh, so they're, they're, they're men, but they have the desires of women, i.e. for men. Right. Because... What was naturalized was the idea that women are men are attracted to women and vice versa. So you have this idea of the invert, and the invert is someone to be pitied essentially, mm-hmm. um, especially from the nineteen twenties onwards when society sort of starts to change from relationship to gender a bit. 
that the invert is someone who's pitied and they tend to come from a middle class position and they tend to be feminized in a certain way. Mm-hmm. But they they see this is the idea is that, and 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 actually in the 1920s and 30s was sort of adopted as a sort of quite positive idea. You get this within writers like Quentin Crisp is that they are seeking out real sexual encounters with quote unquote real men mm-hmm. who are tend to be working class men who can be paid for sex, wow. who, 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 whose public identity is what we now think of as straight. Yeah. So this creates this idea within law of the pervert and, and medicine of the pervert and the, the invert and the pervert. So, so a, a pervert is somebody who is quote unquote natural but through weak morals, through bad education, through poverty, they can be perverted into those sex acts rather than people who are inverted and it's part of who they are. So a lot of the law is really linked towards prosti- like around prostitution as well because the idea is how do we keep the inverts, who tend to be middle class, away from the perverts? I didn't know there was a class component to this. Oh, in the UK, massively, massively, yeah, yeah. so yeah. Um, Which is part, I mean, you know, I'm sort of remembering one of the episodes of Bad Gays I particularly enjoyed about a circle of kind of upper upper class Cambridge spies, I think, particularly, who were, who was it at Cambridge that was that was sort of basically allowed to... Well, Anthony Blunt. Anthony Blunt is yeah, yeah. who I'm thinking of. Yeah. Where there's sort of a, a more of a license in that sort of world for kind of what would have you know, what was still criminalised, you know, behaviour and identity outside of it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So so in sixty in 57, in the Wolfenden Report, um, and the Wolfenden Report was quite radical because, first of all, it had men and women sat, sit, sit on this government, government mm-hmm. committee to the extent that uh, Lord Wolfenden, the guy who chaired it, he was a very, he was very kind of quite socially conservative mm-hmm. and very establishment figure, and he refu- <laughs> refused for them to, people to discuss homosexuals and prostitutes around women but there are women on this committee so they they referred to them as Huntleys and Palmers after the biscuit brand so homosexuals were Huntleys and prostitutes were Palmers because the women couldn't cope with the with the world yeah yeah and these oh women I'm sure the women were fine about it but uh yeah so um biscuit related euphemisms in the like uh, yeah, so it's still based around an inquiry. Yeah, so so the sixty seven Act is actually kind of based around creating tolerance for the idea of this invert who can't help it, yeah. and removing him as a social contagion from the toilets and uh, and right. cottages and gay bars and etc cetera, etc cetera, the places where he lurks and perverts working class yeah. men um, uh, who are of loose morals and can be paid into it. So the very idea of the 67 Act is let's get this behind closed doors. And so yeah. the, the actual law itself says, yes, you, like two men over the age of 21, uh, I think well, maybe it was 25 originally, 20, I think 21 and 67, they can they can have sex, but they have to do it in private, which means behind locked doors, behind closed curtains, in a, in a private home, not a hotel, for example, with no one else in, else there, which also builds into it this class dynamic of who can afford to have gay sex in that situation. Yeah, that I mean that that I remember learning that component from you and Hugh did of a day very very interesting walking tour about about gay spies in London, which we started out uh, sort of in the heart of yeah, Cash was making a, making a face down the line. Yeah, it was brilliant. Um, uh, in which. <laughs> there's, well, there's more to come. Are, you allowed, are we allowed to talk about your your future gay spies project? Yeah, yeah, I'm working on a film at the moment actually about gay spies. 
So there will be there will be more than the thirty odd people who came on that walking tour will yeah. soon be able to learn about this stuff. But it's the thing that really stayed with me as a bit of history that I just couldn't believe I didn't know that the the phrase behind closed doors. I mean, I don't know if that's the origin of it specifically. Like, where, you know, when we say, "Oh, what what goes on behind closed doors," literally refers to like the legal requirement that the door be locked in the nineteen sixty seven legislation. Yeah, I mean, in I don't, case I, someone walk in, I know? doubt it originates from. I'm sure, sure. it's before that, but yeah, yeah, no, definitely behind behind a locked door is part of the definition of it, um, and obviously in a lot of places, and 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 poster. Uh, "Quote unquote decriminalization." There's actually enormous um, boom in prosecutions mm. because it gives the police now a free hand to really uh, uh, crack down on um, cottaging and, yeah. and people having sex in toilets. So, actually, from the sort of early seventies to the nineties, mm. um, the the cracking down on 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 sex in public, uh, which is obviously like still for most gay men, you know, most most gay men are not single eligible bachelors in their thirties who own their own flat yeah so actually people continue to have sex on the heath or or, or mm. pick people up in cottages because we have to pick someone up somewhere you know so that continues like right into the sort of 80s and obviously under thatcher and with aids then then that crackdown really increases and you see a lot more raids on gay bars and um uh, persecution of um gay like queer spaces you know like gays the word for example is repeatedly raided by by hm customs and revenue and stuff revenue customs bookshop made famous by the film pride among other things yeah <laughs> um so yeah that's the, that's so so the idea that that, that this is uh, that gay rights is something that inexorably emerges blossoms out of liberal democracy <laughs> uh, really really is uh, um ahistorical and uh, really obscures the actual history which is that the 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 creation and persecution of the gay subject emerges yeah. out of liberal democracy and out of the state. I mean, that's a really amazing and thorough debunking of that narrative, which um, which I think yeah, is so useful. Yeah, so in preparation for, for this episode, um, I was reading Lucy Robinson's Gay Men on the Left, and in it she discusses this little kind of um, parody that's written for gay news by Colin McInnes in 1972, where he kind of discusses the he kind of parodies a conversation between two people in terms of like how how they can have sex, how they can legally satisfy all of the requirements to have sex. And it was, it kind of listed that they'd have to make sure that no one was expected expected to arrive at the house that they were in to ensure their meeting took place in private and to have a record of how they met to ensure they'd not met through procurement or soliciting. They'd have to produce birth certificates to prove they were over 21, their driving licenses to prove that they lived in England and their national insurance record to, pr- to prove they did not work in the prescribed fields. So it's just like the amount of red tape, like, you know, just <laughs> like <laughs> that, you know, we kind of like say our oh, 1967 is this moment. And then you just think about all of the practical implications of the legal requirements of what they're asking of people. It's an extraordinary bureaucratic burden. Yeah. But also, so I kind of wanted to, um, I guess, like add on to the amazing history that you've kind of mapped out for us. It's like been an absolute wonder so far. I'm just like lapping it up. But I was just kind of wondering, so in At Cursed Objects, we kind of look at objects as a way to, as a way to kind of defining or thinking about the spirit of an age. So, you know, what's the mood? What's the cultural appetite? What does this object show us about the norms, values and expectations of that time? So I kind of was wondering whether I could maybe pull you back a little bit to 
the pink flag that you've yeah and that you found and I, I kind of want you to oh well, I was just wondering whether you could elaborate a little bit more on what that shows about like the cultural mood of um the gay subject I guess in in the in the 2000s yeah I mean for me it's like a sort of arch Blairite object um <laughs> like you're saying about well, the end of gay history it's kind of it is kind of that moment because because yeah it's it what it's invented yeah like in sort of mid 2000s so it's this point where like um a lot of the reforms of 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 the labor government to sort of equalize things the equalization of the age of consent for example and the uh, end of section 28 mm-hmm. which were the big reforms that were promised by the the labor government um and the, you know chris smith is like i think the first gay minister and things like this that you really see as like start to be a change in sort of the early 2000s around attitudes public attitudes towards homosexuality which had which had really taken a big hit in the 80s. In the 70s, things were starting to ease up in terms of public attitudes. And then obviously the AIDS crisis created a big moral scare, which um, Thatcher, Thatcherism sort of uh, really made a lot of political capital out of. Um, but by the early 2000s, you start to see like a, a sort of um, cultural, I guess, like lightening up around a lot of these issues. You start to see, you know, like, I don't know, Graham Norton on TV and... Um, maybe like the appearance of figures who are uh, less caricatures, um, which I don't know, I, fi- I find it kind of a problematic thing because I actually think like a lot of people, for example, like Larry Grayson or um, or uh, Kenneth Williams, for yeah. example, who are seen as these these caricatures are actually very complex, interesting men who aren't caricatures, but and, and, and there's a kind of a, a bit of a femme phobia in saying like, oh, at last we're seeing some real gay men, not just these like camp Whereas, comedians yeah, which which makes camp a sort of marginal yeah or, or sort of you know an illegitimate sort of yeah ideas. exactly yeah but you, but there is definitely a shift in that sort of time um and a, a sort of cultural opening up but at the same time of course you see this like resurgence in like um very very strong anti-migrant discourses in the uk um you know like around around 2000 you see the riots in uh, in Oldham between uh, like Asian communities and the BNP and National Front are starting to start to organise, and then obviously in the two thousands, that's really like mm-hmm. the BNP's the resurgent golden age, um, which is fed a lot by the same like New Labour policies and yeah. also by the Islamophobia that comes after um, Islamophobia, and then sort of aligned with it, overlapping with it, the you know series of bits of legislation New Labour introduced, particularly in their first term, 97 to 2001, but also the second term, um, that restricted sort of rights of asylum seekers and made just basically made their lives a lot harder, Yeah, uh, dispersing them around the country and so on, just cutting them off from support networks. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then you also see, I guess, like a there is a sort of tendency towards a depoliticisation within the gay community that comes post aids mm-hmm. post aids meaning like the height of the crisis obviously we're not sure. in a post aids moment but um but as uh, especially as new new combination therapies um come onto the market mm. um the, the 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 there's a the aids crisis is is such a massive trauma and involves such a massive amount of political organization mm-hmm. and that's a lot of that uh, energy has dissipated i guess by the mm-hmm. um by the mid 2000s um, although not entirely, obviously, there's, there's, there's ongoing, um, really important AIDS activism throughout that period. But but this 
flag emerging at that point seems to me like a really interesting thing. And also, I think the third the third wheel of this third wheel, the third <laughs> axle in this wheel, perhaps, which needs to be ta- <laughs> talked about. Third wheel in this tricycle. Yeah, <laughs> is the rise of new atheism, which I think gives oh, wow. a like, which comes like you know, sort of really post nine nine eleven. You start to mm. see this like this in the in the general discourse is this massive rise in. Um, I guess like a quote unquote rationalism yeah. that's very muscular yeah. for lack of a better word, you know, it's like a very sort of, it's like liberalism on steroids um, yeah. and it's about defending um, against obscurantism and against religious quote unquote religious extremism, which moves to defend, for example, like it makes up like a very strong defense in people like the work of people like Christopher Hitchens of gay rights as a western value and so i think that's a really important thing in understanding this this birth of like a sort of aggressive um homo nationalism is actually uh is is new atheism which sort of empowers that to to a large extent Mm -hmm. which in my reading i think is very clearly driven by a way to mobilize islamophobia while pretending not to involve race yeah intriguing um it is that peak as well i mean you know it's not it's it's Dawkins and Hitchens and it's it's like I even remember I had a book by the journalist Francis Weem called How Mumbo Jumbo Conquered the World, which I remember reading at university and thinking I was very smart because I, you know, rejected Mumbo Jumbo. Nobody would want to embrace it, right? Yeah, right. And and I mean Weem's a really interesting character as well because he he, he although he merges out of private eye, which is mm. historically extremely tr- uh, homophobic for a, for a long time, yeah. he he is always really quite liberal on gay rights. Mm. And uh, he wrote he wrote a great book, in fact, about Tom Dryberg, which is um, oh, right. fascinating. And it is marked like it's marked like for something written in the early nineties. It's it, by a by a maybe I'm wrong in this. Yeah, yeah a heterosexual man mm. that is uh, very liberal on these this issue. But it's also very notable that someone who has that trajectory yeah. and then goes into that now is um, a, a very very strong turf. Is it yeah. really? Yeah, I'm not. I'm maybe not that surprised to hear that. I won't, I'm just gonna point our listeners to an excellent um, edition of Hugh's newsletter, Utopian Drivel, um, about Private Eye and its sort of homophobic history, essentially. Which um, Yeah, which continues a lot later than you'd expect. <laughs> yeah. And there's now been almost entirely dropped um, for for like extremely rabid transphobia. And so, I mean, yeah. tr- Private Eye is the, the organ of um, organised transphobia in Britain, I think, now. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting transition they yeah. made there themselves so this emerges like this flag emerges around this sort of time as like ostensibly a depoliticized maybe like kind of like cool britannia like mm. us against the americans type of type of thing um but i think also it's really telling about it in this design and again i, I don't want to put too much on this guy like i've got no reason to believe that this guy is islamophobic yeah. for example sure. or in, engaging in these narratives it's like a it's just like a I and mean, then this is a nature of aesthetics and objects right Absolutely. is that like there's, yeah. there's un- unintended meanings in- yeah <laughs> or there's like direction. yeah like um something just looks kind of good and you don't really think about what it might be saying deeper than it just looking good like, that's why this podcast exists exactly yeah <laughs> but i think what's really interesting in the in the it emerging this moment you know when britain is engaged in as part of the coalition against iraq and in afghanistan is mm. the relationship between this unicolor flag like you mm. know what's the words like a monotone flag yeah or a, a monocolor like you know because you're, you're the art graduate but i'm going to go with monocolor yeah it's like monochrome <laughs> this monochrome flag is its relationship towards military uh the the flags that in in iraq that um the british and americans were wearing on their uniforms which is 
camo flags so that they, they were wearing, you know, these patches, mm. uh, which were the, the, the Union Jack or the Stars and Stripes, but all in camo, or maybe oh, black wow. and camo, which is emerging at the same time. Isn't there a blue? Okay, but yeah, then, maybe the blue cop one is more recent. Yeah, and then that 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 then emerging later, coming out later, which is which is sort of in the early two thousands, you start to see British cops on duty wearing monocolor black and white Union mm-hmm. Jacks, mm-hmm. which I never saw at all growing up. I didn't probably didn't exist, right. and that being explicitly linked to the same in the US, which is the Blue Lives Matter one, which is a, a monochrome uh, black and white yeah. stars and stripes but with a single blue line to symbolize the thin blue line between order, order and chaos, and chaos. Yeah, yeah which is yeah. which is now ex- essentially a fascist like an explicitly fascist flag in the u.s yeah, yeah, yeah. um so i think the pink with the pink union jack kind of it ha- i think has to be related as well to the to the emergence in sort of popular culture of these the idea these of monochrome sort of turning the uh, monochrome flags yeah. Yeah, yeah can i ask you about about those aesthetics in a way because i guess the way that i kind of read it i mean I don't have the reading that you have, which is just amazing. So this is just going to sound really, really weak. But basically, when I kind of thought about this flag, I I put it more in the tradition of the reclaiming of the uh, Union Jack during kind of like punk, you know, like lots of punks wear that kind of Union Jack style. So I thought I saw it initially as a kind of, um, I don't know, as, as being part of that conversation, as being kind of both with, both with and against the culture, you know, countercultural in that way. And I think the kind of pinkness of it is directly related to all of these things that we were discussing earlier around, uh, you know, I don't know, around how you symbolise or aestheticise a particular um, a particular identity. I just wondered whether that was nonsense. <laughs> what do you think? No, I think that's I think that's like a, a good reading, and I think that's probably the intended one. Like I, I'd I'd say that's probably what the designer intended, which is like yeah, like a queering of the Union Jack. And I remember when I first saw it in the early two thousands, like I used to drink in this pub, which was kind of this. <laughs> it was like a gay bar, which was like uh, called the Rosemary Branch in on uh, Lewisham Way, which was like a had this. I don't know whether it was like a sort of a tacit peace between gays and Millwall supporters or it was the gay Millwall pub but it was sort of a sort of yeah a sort of um gay kind of a gay skin pub sort of thing. it was very nice wow. uh you know like a, a drag queen on Fridays and a uh a Sunday lunch sort of and board games type pub okay. but uh I think that's where I first saw it and I definitely read it as yeah as a slightly like tongue-in-cheek like queering of that but I don't think that lasted so long like mm-hmm. I, yeah but I mean it, uh, also, I think you can relate it to um, the this cover. Is that a penguin cover of the David Gilroy book? Ain't no black and Union Jack. Paul Gilroy. Paul Gilroy. Sorry. Yeah. Um, um, yes, that's actually a very good example. Yeah. Of another another Union Jack that has been you know bent, bent to a particular exactly. Yeah, and that's turned with like the colours. I think of like part of the Jamaican flag and maybe somewhere else. Yeah, black. It's black, yellow, and green, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the cover of Ain't No Black in the Union Jack. Cash, you've got it in your bedroom. I know. I saw it the other day, <laughs> but we don't need to check right now. No, it's, okay, it's okay. It's okay. But yeah, I, I kind of, I kind of saw it in that spirit. And I think when it like in the mid two thousands, there was still an opportunity. Like, like uh, it was a very still a very different culture from today in terms of gay acceptance and stuff. So, um, so I think it was like quite tongue in cheek. But I think that that really changes in the early t- in the early twenty tens with the emergence of the EDL, who I think are really important to talk about. Yes. In a sort of history of um, 
homo-nationalism because that's the first time I mean, there were gay Nazis before. Um, as covered in bad gays as well. As covered in bad gays, yeah. Nick, uh, in the UK, Nikki Crane, who was the um, who, who was uh, a, a sort of thug slash security guy for um, the National Front, but was also the um, door security for Heaven, the big gay nightclub in London. Yeah. Who somehow managed to hold together a sort of gay skin identity while being actively part of the National Front, and although in the end he was he was um, kicked out. And outed by the sun, if I remember right. It's a fascinating episode of that gaze, which I kind of recommend. Yeah, that. yeah. Um, he, he, he was a real nasty piece of work. Um, and actually, fascinatingly, the first openly gay politician in the world was the leader of the SA. Wow. Here we cover in the book, Ernst Röhm, in the 1920s. That's so so there has been a long history. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is like a, 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 a counter history within within um the gay rights movement has been uh, the masculinist movement. And so there's always been, you know, gay Nazis. And mm-hmm. I think um, uh, uh, the, the name, uh, Michael Coonan, I think his name was, the name escapes me. I think maybe on dodgy ground saying it here, because he, he can actually be prosecuted in Austria for saying this, but he was the leader of the Austrian fascist party in the, the 90s. And he was yeah. um, he was a gay man as well, uh, although his wife subsequently sued someone for saying so. Um, and then, of, and then the real figure, of course, here is Pim Fortuyn, who who emerges in um, the Netherlands in the late nineties, early two thousands, um, who is a, a very camp, openly gay, um, former leftist or former former socialist, I guess, a university professor, who um, who sort of wins on a ticket of, um, I guess, populist, you know, like anti-establishment sort of rhetoric. Which is very, very um, anti-migrant yeah. and, and anti-Muslim, uh, but but using as its basis, uh, they're against our liberal Dutch culture. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. So he appears on TV in the sort of early two thousands, saying, you know, like how can I how can I be racist? I I, I love fucking black men, for example, or um, making jokes about like I don't know the taste of semen on TV, and he gets elected and he gets very popular. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. but pushing this like anti-migrant position and that that, that becomes like um really the building block uh, in the uk after the failure of the bnp is the far right sort of turns of course towards like mm. this different tack of like the edl which which tries to po- posit itself as a departure from the old far right so mm-hmm. it becomes um notionally pro-zionist yeah. um pro-israeli and it becomes notionally pro gay rights um and, and so and notionally multicultural if we, yeah that's if like, with very narrow boundaries which basically mean we have one or two black get, members but you but get no, some but, weird like some weird Sikh guy who turns yeah. up and then like they parade him on the shoulders and it's the same with the get the gay yeah. people who join um uh who are part of that but they have a lgbtq division of course yeah. and then for me now that's really what i associate is going on edl mark not going on yeah, marches. <laughs> Let's be very clear. <laughs> going on, going on, going on counter marches in like East London against the EDL uh, and and seeing these pink Union Jacks from the from the um, LGBT. Right, so they were specifically flown by the division. Yeah, I can I, I can remember on wow. one one march specifically, but you also get this thing, of course, emerging in the uh, which is like yeah, it's like I guess militarized or militant homo nationalism. Mm. Uh, and you get this other big thing, of course, um, which was, which was a, a really key thing for like a, a certain type of gay political movement, I guess, that was emerging in uh, uh, sort of between 2009, 10, 11, mm. um, which is based, which comes out really, is really strongly influenced by um, 
by the new atheist sort of position, this really sort of muscular liberalism, mm. which is around the idea of a no-go zone in East London, and that, that some someone, I think they caught him in the end, and it was some like nineteen-year-old like trouble troubled Muslim kids sticking up signs saying like this is a no-go area for gays or something. Yeah. Which really gets the so then so then there is a there is a supposedly grassroots gay rights march that is organized that that is supposed to go through East London as a response to this, mm-hmm. which receives backing, I think I'm right in saying this receives backing from um Johan Hari. Right. And these sort of like muscular liberal figures of the of that sort of yeah. ilk, I guess. But it ends up, of course, then, uh, and so um, I know a lot of people who were involved in the Joiners' Arms, which was a, a much more queer sort of space in within East London, which were, were backing sort of again, were pushing back against this, and they organised actually a, a queer a queer Pride March as, which was within that community with LGBTQ Muslim Association. Not hard to do, is it? To just to actually just engage with the area that you are, you know. Well, if you yeah, because if you come from that area, right. if you live in that area. <laughs> Uh, you know, and it was, but it was an attempt by the press to like really build this tension and suggest yeah. that there was this like sort of split. And in the end, that march actually failed when it turned out that one of the the organisers actually was an EDL member. Right. So it was it who became, was who was very much using basically LGBT yeah. people as a wedge in order to right, know, yeah. fight his low key race war essentially. Yeah. And you still get this a lot, you know, in talking. You know, if you if if LGBTQ people talking start to talk about, for example. Um, Taking taking like a, a pro Palestinian position or, mm-hmm. or or like an anti imperialist position in discussions on the Middle East, you will always get someone who comes to you saying like, "They'd throw you off a building." Yeah, yeah. said with like great relish. You yeah, know? you know, yeah. like we won't throw you off a building, but they will. And yeah. if you don't support us, we'll throw you over to them or whatever. It's, it's you know, it's like a very just... simple, yeah, sort of thing. And and um, and it's very telling, of course, because because um, Israel is is seen as like one of the prime um uh, state actors in sort of weaponizing this homo nationalism you know like sure. like tel aviv and tel aviv's reputation as like this sort of the, the gay paradise in the middle east is really consciously um put forward by by the israelis and and quite often in discussion you'll get people saying like oh well israel is the only country in the middle east that accepts gay marriage which um again has a huge number of caveats that need to come underneath <laughs> it um and and also of course they, they don't they don't talk about it at all but it's really important is the way that the IDF intelligence agencies blackmail uh, LGBTQ Palestinians um, by threatening to out them right. uh, as part of an organized program in order to get them to become spies which of course within within um, within Gaza has created this like union between the idea that LGBTQ people are spies. Oh wow! So, so actually, their their supposed like liberal liberal position on it is actually built around weaponizing uh, homophobia in order to in order to gain intelligence and you endangering know. LGBTQ people in order to advance the settler colonial project. Abs- absolutely, yeah. So, so um, yeah, these are all yeah complex issues all, all mixed. I mean, like other. yeah, the sort of marketing of Tel Aviv is is possibly one of the you know um, as as a gay paradise is possibly one of the like easiest go-to examples of of pink washing that, that you could that you could come up with which i guess um i mean the time's cracking on and we could just we could be talking for hours i think but we'll, we'll wrap up soon i i would love to to know what your sort of sense of how do you how do you feel about about pride and the 
co-option or um, in, I don't want to say infiltration. The the way that 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 sort of pink that companies, corporate uh, global corporations or indeed non-global corporations have um, moved into that space over the the last. I mean, periodize it for us. Is it the last decade or two that's been particularly intense? Is it the same sort of neat recent history of the, the flag? Yeah, I'd say I'd say from it's about the same same sort of period of the sort yeah. of late two thousands. I mean, um, there have been corporations that have been like. In from the early days, you know, but people like Absolute, for example, um, were, so they deserve a little bit of respect. I mean, yeah, uh, ab- yeah, ab- yeah I mean, they were advertising to the gay community, sure. but, but they were they, but they didn't were, have to, and a lot of their peers didn't. I guess. Yeah, but they were explicitly advertising from like I think like maybe the late seventies, early eighties, mm-hmm. um, a few beer companies and stuff. Um, but yeah, no, that that sort of thing that you get now of like the really hardcore, like everyone doing it, it starts 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 to emerge in the sort of mid two thousands, and and one of the big changes is. You've always had institutional, um, professional groups marching at Pride. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a gay, a gay NHS yeah. block or um, solicitors. Yeah, gay. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, because you can go. The, the 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 it's expensive to organise this parade, and part yeah. of the way to do that is having associations pay for their floats or pay to uh, march, uh, which is again controversial. Like the whole pay to marching is very very controversial. Yeah. And you start to see this thing of like some of the more sort of quote unquote progressive companies saying like, okay, you know, sort of like the co-op or something saying like, yes, we'll allow you to march with co-op branding because mm. as the co-op workers, gay, gay right. workers or LGBTQ workers. And then in the sort of early 2000s, that completely explodes in, an, in a very non-critical way because um, in London, because Pride in London needs the money to pay for the whole thing, yeah. you know, closes yeah. down a city basically yeah, yeah. For a day. So you get, for example, like, Lockheed Martin LGBTQ or GCH, <laughs> GCHQ, yeah. Or the, the really controversial thing that she, which is really makes, really ties in, I think, to um, this whole discussion around the co option of foreign nationalism is when the government actually changes the law to allow uh, service men and women in uniform to march and to the police to march. So the police are prohibited from marching in political events in uniform. But they actually now make an exception for gay pride, Interesting. Um, which is obviously an attempt to change their reputation as being like the instigators and controllers of homophobia for a, yeah. um, a century. But but you, yeah, you start to see that. And then I think what's interesting is I think we've probably gone through a real dark low period of like completely anodyne corporatization of pride. And we're yeah. starting to see uh, with both Black Lives Matter and with the... Mm, much more confrontational, uh, controversial sort of uh, attack on trans people, in, especially in the UK, you start to see a repoliticization of the gay community, LGBTQ community in the last decade or so. And one of the manifestations of this has been um, a new version of the rainbow flag. Oh, right. So uh, I think uh, uh, in 2017, there's this, the, in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Pride March adopts a new flag, a rainbow flag, which is the same rainbow flag, but at the top above what was normally the red, which is the top stripe, is a brown and black stripe to um, like acknowledge the sort of exclusion of um, people of colour from the queer community, like racism being like a huge problem yeah, historically yeah. in the queer community uh, with and with homosexual, the homosexual subject being tied to race so much. So you see that in 20, 2017. And then the next year... <laughs> Um, a guy called Daniel Quasar invents this flag called the Pride Progress Pride Progress flag, which is the regular rainbow flag, but with um, a chevron. Yeah, 
and the chevron is black and brown and then um, pink and blue and white for trans people. Uh, and now that is becoming much more sort of universal as like a more politically engaged sort of more radical flag, which sort of yeah I don't know feels as a as a queer person feels very different. When I see that, I'm like, mm. oh, good, like this is yeah. like this is not just um, a corporation. Although I think it's rapidly being adopted. I think corporations now are starting to use that as the the flag. Oh, really? That's yeah. interesting. But at least you know that anyone flying that is not going to be um, a turf. Yeah. Which yeah. is a problem in the community. <laughs> I was just, um, I was really, yeah, interested in all of those ideas. And I saw a tweet today that I just thought was just kind of tied into a lot of these conversations. And basically, this guy tweeted about something that was happening in Poland. I'm Polish. And it said, lol, the Institute of National Remembrance, which is this horrible organization, tasked with making sure nobody lies about Polish history, airbrushed someone's rainbow striped bag out of a publicity photo, presumably because that's not how they remembered it. <laughs> it's just really interesting, you know, when we talk about the discourses around all of these different types of flags that there are, you know, clearly there are still so many uh, states, nations that see something like a rainbow flag as a threat, you know, even as like corporations are like greedily trying to devour it to sell it, sell it. And sell their own brand. I mean, just I mean, it, it points to you know I mean, all this stuff, including the two new versions that you you described of um, of the rainbow flag, both of which I've seen, neither of which I think I realised the specifics of what those new components meant until you just explained it. Um, points to how incredibly uh, what contentious objects <laughs> these are. Actually, I've just googled it, and it is vexillology. Yeah. Uh, so this is a special vexillological episode. I mean. Yeah. On the on the on the specifics of the vexillology, what I think is also kind of interesting about it is that the uh, the pink jack, like the pink stars and stripes, only work, you, you can only do that for certain types of national flags, like ones that have like quite intricate designs. Like you couldn't do a you can do it with a tricolor. Could yeah, you, you can do, <laughs> or you can do you can do a, a pink Polish flag because it would just be you know <laughs> it'd be very hard to discern what these <laughs> flags are, for example. Yeah, so actually like. That's thing, one thing that I think is quite interesting. And then the other thing is that with this new flag with the chevron mm. is the symbology of the chevron uh, being a sort of anti-colonial symbol in flags. You is know? it? Because well, I was just thinking about the Catalan flag, obviously, based on where we're sitting, which has itself about five different iterations, probably more than that, based yeah. on whether you're a, you're a socialist Catalan nationalist or a... One that you know harks back to the 1930s. Anyway, I won't miss them all. Well, no, that's a really good example. <laughs> so the Catalan flag is, I think, uh, four red stripes on five gold. Yeah, uh, and that's uh, that comes from this guy, uh, William the ha- uh, no Wilfred de Harry, who was this some Catalan knight in the 11th century or Amazing something, name. <laughs> who had a gold shield, and upon dying, he he sort of ran streaked his bloody fingers oh down. So so that is the sort of official flag of the of the cat of catalonia and the the spanish state will fly that like mm. and and so quite often if you see a spanish flag and that flag it, it doesn't it, it actually might mean you're a unionist but you be, you're a catalan who believes catalonia is part right. of spain spain yeah, yeah and then in in the uh early 20th century you get the one with the blue chevron with the mm. white star which explicitly takes it as the, its design from um the cuban and Puerto Rican flags so it has it specifically is an anti-colonial thing you know to have this chevron and then obviously the the socialist version which is um, a yellow chevron of a a red star but what's quite interesting I think is 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 maybe that that being something that 
carries on in this aesthetic of the of the um this new pride progress flag with the chevron is like symbolizing this like active um anti-colonialist hopefully anti-colonialist growth of a politics which is within the gay community which is uh, more aware of um of race and the history of racism and the relationship between colonialism and the development of the homosexual subject um, that might be too much of a hope for like i'm <laughs> i'm sure it'll be recuperated pretty soon enough sure. but i have to say actually uh, dan I, i've been on a number of protests here both catalan protests and gay protests here mm. which combine the rainbow flag and the catalan Whoa. flag so you have the blue chevron of the white star but with a with a on a rainbow wow, flag that yeah. is that is a wonderful bit of sort of I'm not going to say synergy, but bringing together some of the things we've been discussing today. Um, who knew you could hack flags quite so uh, <laughs> quite so consistently? Um, I think it's probably about time to round up. Do you guys? Yeah, it's you know it's lunchtime in London. It's definitely l- it's lunchtime in Spain. Oh, it's uh, three o'clock. Um, it's and lunchtime. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but. Yeah, I hope you'll join me in uh, thanking Hugh Lemmy for an absolutely fascinating episode. And do please go out there and uh, pre-order Bad Gays, A Homosexual History, which comes out on Verso Books on the 31st of May this year. Give it to all of your friends for Pride Month as their Pride gifts. That's not a thing, is it? It's now. Is it? No, it is. Oh, right. As of me saying, as of you saying that, yeah. <laughs> what? Are you, yeah, what are you? What are you getting for Pride Month? Um, <laughs> I can't add anything. That was so funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Okay, well, in that case, just, my brain was just going off into like, is there a Pride Santa Claus? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Liza Minnelli. <laughs> <laughs> Liza Minnelli is Pride Santa. Well, he, yeah, it's it's been really great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks um, for having me. And uh, yeah, I will ask you to also go and subscribe to Bad Gaze podcast. Do the same with Cursed Objects. Tell your friends about all of these things. Join our various Patreons, our various Substacks, and funnel money to us so we can keep talking about flags for the time of the world. <laughs> Thanks so much, everybody. Goodbye. Bye.